Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray now for the preaching of your word. May you, by your spirit, use the word of God to bring great encouragement and comfort and assurance to the people of God. May you minister to our hearts. May you glorify yourself as you build up your church through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, with the start of the new year, we have begun a new series in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, which we've been calling Foundations of a Flourishing Church. Now, in a previous message, I gave some background to this letter. Uh, We see that it's the Apostle Paul writing to a church that he had helped plant in the city of Thessalonica. We learned all about this in Acts chapter 17. And there we're told that the church faced opposition from very early on to such a degree that Paul and his associates had to make uh, a very abrupt uh, exit from the city because of the mounting persecution. So for a good while, Paul didn't know if he had planted a flourishing church or not. He was seriously worried that they were nothing but a cut flower church, a church that looks good and looks healthy and might look that way for a short while, but a cut flower church will eventually wither and die having been cut off from its root. So earlier, he had sent Timothy to check on the Thessalonians. And now, Timothy has returned with good news. They're not a cut flower church. No, in fact, the Thessalonians have roots that sink deep in the gospel, and they are still flourishing in spite of all the afflictions they face. And so Paul is overjoyed by this news. He is relieved. And so one of the first things he does is he pens a letter that we now know as 1 Thessalonians a letter whose central theme is the joy to be had when we see the gospel flourishing in people's lives. And we're not just talking about when people become Christians. I mean, there, of course, there's no doubt great joy involved when someone gets saved. We join in the celebration that takes place with the angels in heaven every single time one sinner repents and is saved. And that that feeling of joy when someone believes in the gospel for the first time is unparalleled, save for one other reason. That's when someone perseveres in the gospel. The joy we feel when people trust in the Lord and convert is only equaled by the joy that we feel when they stand fast in the Lord and persevere. You know, in my years of pastoral ministry. I've been blessed by many opportunities to see people come to Christ, to to see them repent of their sins and to to trust in the gospel and to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Those are precious moments. Those are moments that that every uh, pastor wishes that, that would occur more and more often. And those moments, though, have only been matched by those moments of seeing someone Someone that I knew uh, uh, as a young believer years ago, still walking strong in the Lord to this very day. You know, having served in the same church for, for so long gives me a unique vantage point to witness these stories of perseverance. When I was the, the youth director in this church, which if you think about it, it's, it's, uh, it began 20 years ago. 
So in 2001, I, I, I started serving uh, in the youth group, and I had in that youth group three young men who were a joy to lead. Stanley Cheng, Jonathan Huang, and Ken Lee. And now it gives me even greater joy to see these three men of God still walking strong in the Lord and serving in significant capacities in the life of our church. Stanley as our current youth minister, Jonathan as a church elder for the last four years, and Ken as a church deacon and chair of our council last year. Now, I could name so many more from from my days in youth ministry, and it just brings me so much joy to see them still persevering in the gospel, still walking with the Lord, still worshiping at HCC. Sam Liu, Jennifer Nguyen, Michael Lin, Esther Shea, Janine Wong, Monica Chang, Kara Chow, uh, others, uh, others have returned, and for uh, whatever reason, God has has uh, called them on to to a new city or to a, to a new church. But th- there, there are other names that that I could name of people that were in that youth group that that, that came through uh, and uh, our church. But more importantly, even though they're not worshiping here, they're still walking with the Lord, and they are still involved in church life somewhere. And you know, if you talk to to older Christian parents. They're going to tell you that they were overjoyed when their children received Christ at a young age. But they'll also tell you that there is no greater joy than knowing that their adult children are still walking with the Lord to this day. So friends, this morning, our text communicates both the anxiety and the exuberance that Paul felt as he reflected on the gospel perseverance of those that he cared about. And, and by studying this text, it's going to be both inspiring and instructive for us. And so in this morning's text, I see four lessons that we can draw in regards to gospel perseverance. So the first lesson that we can draw from our text is this. First, take seriously the possibility of falling away. Take seriously the possibility of falling away. Because that's the tragic outcome that worried Paul. For many days and nights after his abrupt departure from Thessalonica, he had no idea what would become of this fledgling church. His exuberance over Timothy's good report just reflects how concerned he was, and, and, and it reveals how real is the possibility that someone could fall away from the faith and abandon the Lord. Listen to uh, a verse earlier uh, um, uh, uh, to, our, to our text. Listen to chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Now, I know this might be confusing for some of you because you were rightly taught that no one can lose their salvation that once saved, always saved. I mean, didn't, didn't Paul himself teach that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? I mean, didn't he teach that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Doesn't Paul believe in the eternal security of all believers? Well, yes, of course he does. 
He believed that believers cannot lose their salvation. They are eternally secure in Christ. But friends, the problem here is that he wasn't sure yet if the Thessalonians were truly believers. Yes, they had made some decisions during his short stay in their city, but Paul was on a mission to make disciples, not to make people who make decisions. So he wasn't at peace just because they had made a decision about Christ in the past. His concern is whether or not they are disciples, whether they or not they are following Jesus in the present. Are they walking with Christ right now? That's the most important question. Think about Jesus' parable of the four soils, which I'm sure the Apostle Paul was well aware of. In the second soil, the seed of the gospel sprang up immediately and looked promising at first glance. But the problem is that this was rocky ground, and so there was no depth of soil. So when the sun rose and scorched it, the plant, having no root, quickly withered away. It was a cut flower. Jesus went on to explain uh, the parable by saying the second soil people are those who hear the word of God and immediately receive it with joy. They make a decision, but they have no root in themselves. And so when trials and tribulations or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And that's what Paul is concerned about. He's worried that the Thessalonians are going to fall away on account of tribulation and persecution. He's aware that falling away is a sign that a profession of faith was merely a decision of the flesh as opposed to being a revelation from our Father in heaven. And that principle is reaffirmed by the Apostle John in his first epistle. Uh, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he's describing what happens to those who abandon the gospel and leave the church. And he says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So do you see how they're going out from us? They're they're falling away from Christ and the body of Christ made it plain that they were never really part of the body of Christ in the first place. Because if they had been of us, it says here, they would have continued with us. If they were truly disciples of Christ, then they would still be walking with Christ. If they were truly saved, they would continue to be saved. So Paul took seriously the possibility, be it however remote, that the Thessalonians could have fallen away and thus prove that their faith was as alive as a cut flower. And we, my friends, would be wise to do the same, to to also take that as seriously, to, to not be presumptuous, to not assume that we could never fall away. Friends, if one day you discover that I have fallen away from Christ, that I'm no longer pastoring, that I'm no longer in the church, I'm no longer walking with Jesus, then please love me well. Not by by assuring me that once saved, always saved. 
No, please love me well by warning me of the dangers of falling away. It doesn't matter how many years I've been faithfully serving the church. It doesn't matter how many biblical sermons I've preached. If I don't persevere in the gospel, then don't comfort me. Don't assume I'm okay. Jesus even warned in the Sermon on the Mount that on the final day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not preach sermons in your name and lead small groups in your name and do many mighty works of ministry in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. May we never May we never hear those words. May those words sober us to take our faith more seriously. Now, if there is a possibility that those who today claim to be Christians could tomorrow fall away, then then how do we know if we're genuine Christians? Well, that's a good question. And that leads to the second lesson that we can draw from our text. And that is, secondly, to look carefully for the marks of true faith. Look carefully for the marks of true faith. Let me read verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. So what was this good news that Timothy brought? It was good news about the Thessalonians' faith and love. Timothy told Paul not to worry. The tempter had failed. In spite of all their afflictions, the Thessalonians still had faith and they still had love. They were rightly believing the gospel and rightly loving one another. Those, my friends, are the marks of true faith. Every true Christian will exhibit a right belief in the gospel and a right love for God and for each other. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul has said that he constantly thanks God for the Thessalonians. And when he does think, uh, he's thinking about them, he's remembering, quote, their work of faith and labor of love. Now notice there. Notice how he wasn't just thankful for their faith and love. No, he says he was thankful for their work of faith and their labor of love. Their faith and love were not just these mere abstract concepts. They were manifested in good works. Paul was thankful for their faith's work and their love's labor. That's how you know if a tree is truly good on the inside by looking at its fruit, by the good fruit that it produces. And so similarly, the marks of true faith are the works produced by your faith and the labor that results from your love. Now, for the, Thess- for the Thessalonians, we can get a little bit more specific than that. We can get more concrete about their work of faith and their labor of love because Paul actually identifies a specific example of that work and that labor in another letter of his. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's trying to motivate the Corinthian church to give generously to a relief effort on behalf of the church in Jerusalem who is, is, is suffering uh, a, a very heavy uh, hardship. And he points to the Thessalonian church as a great example of faith and, 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 and love at work. 
Now listen to this. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And that's the region, including churches in Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So what we see is that the Thessalonians produced a work of love, of faith, a labor of love by giving generously to, to a relief effort aimed at meeting the practical needs of others. And, and it's not like they just simply gave out of the abundance of their wealth. It's not like a billionaire giving a million dollars. No, it says here that they were extremely poor and they were under a severe test of affliction themselves. So they didn't have an abundance of wealth, but they did have an abundance of joy. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And Paul goes on to say in verse 4 that they were even begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I mean, who ever heard of that? I mean, of course, I've heard of extremely poor people begging. I mean, we see them begging for spare change on the side of the road. But have you ever seen extremely poor people abounding in joy and begging for the chance to give generously to the relief of the suffering of others? But this kind of work of faith, this kind of labor of love is exactly what you can expect when the grace of God is poured out on a people and they are saved from their sin and selfishness. Listen again to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, to what Paul says he's describing here. Notice how he wasn't just giving the Corinthians an example of good works. He's actually giving them an illustration of God's grace at work. Listen again. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So if the grace of God has been given to you, if God's grace has been showered over you in, in, in overflowing in your life, if you possess true faith by grace, then a mark of your genuineness is a love for one another. Someone can look at your life Someone can witness the labors of love in your life where you're serving and you're giving to meet practical needs and to relieve the suffering of others and not just out of an abundance of your wealth, but no, you are giving above and beyond your means and you're doing all of it with an abundance of joy because according to your faith, your security, your hope, your comfort is not in money, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Only those who are rich in Christ and filled with the grace of God can carry out such labors of love. So friends, if you do witness this kind of love, if you see the marks of this kind of faith, whether in your own life or in the life of other people around you, then 
rejoice greatly. And again, I say rejoice. That's the third lesson that we can learn from Paul's example. We should, thirdly, rejoice greatly over stories of perseverance. Rejoice greatly over stories of perseverance. Friends, if, you're, if your heart your heart is not overjoyed when you hear that a believer is still walking strong in the Lord, then I don't think you realize just how much of a work of grace that is. The same amazing grace that saved a wretch like me is the same amazing grace that keeps me from falling back into my old wretched ways. My point is this. As much as we rejoice over stories of conversion, let's equally rejoice over stories of perseverance. Look back at verse 6 with me. Paul is overjoyed to hear that the Thessalonians still have, a, have, have, have positive memories of him. They, they, they don't hold it against him that he had to leave them so abruptly. And they still have a warm affection towards him, longing to see him face to face again. Now that, that attitude, coupled with uh, their marks of true faith, brought Paul so much joy. It signaled to him that the Thessalonians were still persevering. That news was both comforting and life-giving, considering all that he was going through. Keep reading in verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So let's just quickly recall the distress and affliction that Paul was going through. Back in chapter 2, verse 2, he mentioned how he suffered and was shamefully treated at Philippi. From Acts chapter 16, we, we learned that he was specifically beaten, jailed, and defamed while at Philippi. And in Acts 17, we learned that he was persecuted and expelled from both Thessalonica and then next from the city of Berea. And when he arrived in Athens, he was rejected and scorned. And so by the time that he arrived in Corinth, all the hardship he was experiencing was wearing thin on him. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, he admits that when he first arrived in their city, he was, quote, in weakness and in fear and trembling. But now, now that he has received this good report from Timothy, now that he hears that the Thessalonians are walking strong in the Lord, now Paul is comforted about them, and he no longer worries. But he's more than just relieved. He's renewed. He's reinvigorated. Listen to verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What makes Paul feel alive again, what, what renews his soul, is knowing that those he cares deeply about are standing fast in the Lord. They're standing firm in the gospel. No matter the costs of discipleship, they're still following Jesus. They've endured suffering and, and hardship, and they still remain steadfast to the Lord. He goes on in verse 9 with a rhetorical question that is really just bursting with joy. Listen to this. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? 
as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see, your, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul's basically saying, how can we thank God enough for you? But for all the joy that we feel for your sake, how can we thank God enough? For Paul, one of the chief joys in life was to see Christians walking in faithfulness to God. Now, of course, as a missionary, for Paul, another chief joy was seeing people respond to the gospel with faith for the first time. In the book of Acts, if you read through Acts, which provides for us a real narrative account of his missionary encounters with non-believers prior to their conversion, well, yes, there you're going to see more examples of his joy and exuberance when the spiritually dead come to life, when, when people are born again. But if you're in the epistles, if you're reading Paul's letters, which were usually written to churches, the joy that exudes from his letters is a joy not over conversions, but over the fact that these converts are still walking strong as disciples of Christ. Because Paul knows, as we've already said, that there is always the possibility of false conversion. He knows the tempter is always going to plot and scheme to trip us up, to cause us to fall away. He knows the deceitfulness of the human heart, and so he does not take it for granted that people will always persevere. So whenever Paul hears that someone is doing so, he will not only feel an abundance of joy within, he's going to want to share it with everyone as, 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 as he writes and as he shares with others. Paul's joy is really just dripping off the pages of First and Second Thessalonians. And the same could be said for his letter to the Philippians, which, remember, all those letters were written to those churches in Macedonia who were under severe affliction at the time, and yet they were still standing firm in the faith and performing great labors of love. So, church, what's the takeaway for us? Well, what I hope and pray becomes more common in our life together are intentional celebrations of God's grace in persevering our faith. How often... How often do you hear each other boasting, not about ourselves, not about our accomplishments, but boasting about each other, about how amazing it is that by God's grace, this brother or, or this sister is still walking strong in the Lord, still, still willing to repent of sin and to resist temptation and to fight for holiness and to press on in Christian obedience. Do we ever boast like that? Paul does. <clears throat> Listen to chapter 2, verse 19 to 20. For what is our hope or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Or listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and, the affli and in the afflictions that you are enduring. 
Paul loves to tell other churches that he visits about the Thessalonian church. He boasts about how they are walking strong in the Lord in spite of all their suffering. He loves to do that. And friends, I I know it may seem counterintuitive, but there is something very healthy. There is something very God-glorifying when we boast in the perseverance of others as long as we recognize their perseverance as a work of God's grace. Because ultimately, we're really just boasting in the Lord as protector, preserver, and provider for his people. And that's why we're hoping in our church to highlight more testimonies of perseverance. When we talk about you know, sharing a testimony, I, I know our instinct is to usually think about conversion testimonies, you know, sharing about how you first came to Christ. And, and that is very important. And we still love to, to have people share conversion testimonies, especially at their baptism. But what we like to do now in, in our membership meetings is we've been encouraging members to testify to God's persevering work in their lives. We want to hear stories of how the Lord has enabled you to to mortify your sin or to break free from some long-held sin patterns in your life or or how he's helped you to resist the schemes of the devil. Friends, if you know of church members uh, who have such stories like that, stories of gospel perseverance, please let me know. I would love to to invite them to share in our meetings. And so we're hoping to provide opportunities for people to testify in one of our quarterly membership meetings. And uh, we have, by the way, one coming up on uh, on this coming Friday, on February 12th. So this, by the way, is another reason why church members really shouldn't miss a membership meeting. Otherwise, you're going to miss the chance to rejoice greatly with the rest of us over these stories of perseverance. Now, friends, in the remainder of our passage, Paul offers up a prayer for the recipients of his letter. And he does that quite often in his letters. He's just going to suddenly, you know, burst out in prayer. And now as we read this prayer, there is one instructive lesson that I think we can apply to our own prayer lives, individually and corporately. We should, and this is our fourth lesson, we should pray intently that we all arrive blameless before the throne of God. Pray intently that we all arrive blameless before the throne of God. Listen, friends, to Paul's prayer in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So the first thing that Paul prays for is for an opportunity to return to Thessalonica, to see the believers face to face again and to supply whatever is lacking in their faith. That is to to finish whatever discipleship lessons that he left off uh, when his stay was abruptly cut short. Now, when he says, may God direct our way to you, he literally means, may God make our way straight. May he clear a path. May he remove any impediments uh, for us to come to you. Because earlier in chapter 2, verse 18, he said he had tried again and again to get back to Thessalonica, but Satan hindered him. So Paul recognizes that the hindrances to his travel plans are not merely the the result of bad weather or or bad luck. He realizes that spiritual forces are involved. Satan doesn't want him to go back to Thessalonica. He doesn't want him to go back to encourage and to disciple the church. And so 
Paul, knowing the spiritual forces involved, resorted to the most powerful of spiritual weapons to combat that, that being prayer. And friends, just as an aside, I want you to know that I've actually been praying something very similar, that God would direct my way to you. Like Paul, I've been praying most earnestly night and day that I may see you face to face. We've been separated by this pandemic for just so long, and it's not been good for our spiritual health together as a body. I I don't think it's a stretch to say that spiritual forces are involved here. In, in that the tempter, I believe, is, is hoping to prolong this pandemic in order to test our resolve and to tempt us to fall away. And so I've been praying, and I encourage you to pray the same thing, for God to bring a quick end to this pandemic, to clear the path, to make a way, to remove any impediments from us reuniting and seeing each other again face to face. Now, Paul goes on in verse 12 to pray that the Lord will make the Thessalonians, quote, increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Now, that's a prayer for their love, not simply to increase, but to abound beyond all limits, to be exceedingly great and overflowing towards those inside and those outside the church. Now, why is Paul praying for their love to abound and to overflow in this way? It's because it's the mark of true faith. Faith that enables you to arrive blameless before the throne of God. Listen to verse 13. May you increase and abound in love so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And as we've noted before, one of the major themes of 1 Thessalonians is the second coming of Christ. Every chapter ends with a stress on Jesus' return, which is why Paul is so deeply concerned for the spiritual health and the progress of the Thessalonian church, because he knows that Christ is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. And so Paul hopes to return to Thessalonica to to find out how they are, how they're doing spiritually before Christ returns for them all. And so he wants to make sure that they are prepared, that they are rooted and established in the faith before Christ comes and brings a final reckoning. And friends, I hope we share in Paul's deep concern what will motivate us to care more deeply about people Uh, to to care more deeply that people that we care about are going to persevere in the faith is the belief that time is of the essence, that Christ is coming, and we have no idea when. So we should always be ready, and we should always be helping people that we care about to be ready. And the most effective way to do that is to pray. Pray to pray for them. Prayer is often the difference that explains why one person persevered while the other fell away. I I, I always find it fascinating that prayer was all that separated Peter from Judas. 
both, if you think about it, were disciples of Jesus who ended up betraying their Lord. Now, of course, their circumstances were different, but the guilt was the same, and so was their remorse. They both felt sorrowful for what they did. And yet only Peter reached repentance. Only Peter was restored and persevered in his faith. Why is that? Because Jesus prayed for him. Listen to Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32. This is where the Lord predicted Simon Peter's betrayal. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's why Peter persevered and Judas didn't. I think we give Peter too much credit to assume that he persevered because he was just more godly or that he had better morals than Judas. No, no, friends, it had nothing to do with Peter. It was because he was prayed for. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith may not fail. And in his sovereign will, for reasons that he only knows, he didn't pray the same thing for Judas. And that's what made the difference. So friends, this is why we pray. This is why we should pray intently for all of us to arrive blameless before the throne of God. I encourage you to incorporate some kind, this kind of prayer in some form into your own prayer life. Pray for yourself. Pray for your loved ones. Pray for each other as a church. Pray that our faith may not fail, that we finish the race, that we keep the faith, and ask Jesus specifically to pray over you that same prayer that he prayed over Peter. And as our great high priest, just know that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives right now at the right hand of God to pray for us. Take comfort in that, my friends. And let's go to him in prayer. Oh God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the encouragement that it brings to us. We thank you for the grace that you have given to us that we are able to persevere in our faith, that we are still walking with you. We know it is not because of our own strength, our own will. It is because, Lord, you are good and you are faithful and you will not allow us to perish you promise that no one can snatch us out of your hands. Thank you for the comfort that you bring to us. Thank you for holding us fast, O oh Lord, even in those seasons of life where we feel so weak and we feel so helpless. Thank you for holding us and keeping us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.